0: Hello, I'm Chris Point, publisher and editor-in-chief of Business in Vancouver. We're proud to present this series of 10 discussions with prominent British Columbians in what we call the BIB Business Leadership Series, where they're going to share their views on the impact of the pandemic and how our economy can recover. Our series is sponsored by PwC and by FASCAN. Their messages appear at the start and finish of our conversations, and we're brought to you by UBC Souter Executive Education. All of its programs are running online now until the end of the year offering an opportunity to engage with faculty and peers in virtual classrooms. Enjoy the conversations. PwC Canada, our purpose is to build trust in society and solve important problems. What we have today is a very important problem. This pandemic affects us all globally. In BC, as the curve continues to flatten, we are settling into new ways of working and considering what business, as usual, may look like going forward. We are proud of PwC to sponsor this podcast series From business in Vancouver to talk about what business leaders should know. Returning to the workplace isn't just about physical places. It's about finding opportunities to thrive in this new era. So let's keep the conversation going. Well thanks for joining us today on the BIB Business Leadership series of discussions with prominent British Columbians about the impact of the pandemic on our economy and the steps our leaders believe are ahead for us. I'm Kirk LePoint, publisher and editor-in-chief at BIB. Carol Taylor is one of our province's most accomplished, most visible business leaders with a resume that would uh, take us much of our session to cite uh, former minister of finance, uh, longtime executive now involved in board work and governance issues. But in a lot of ways, I think uh, our institutions, our political leaders and, and others have turned to her many, many times just for this great insight on how the economy might perform better. And obviously at this time, Returning to her to get a bit of a sense of how the economy might uh, restore it much of itself in the time ahead. So, I wanted to make sure she was part of our leadership series. Good to see you.
1: Good to see you, Kirk.
0: Yeah, well, uh, roll back the clock a little bit uh, 12, 13 weeks, however many weeks actually. And where, you know, how did you come to apprehend what was about to hit us with COVID 19? Do you remember an episode or two or a moment where you went? oh, this is going to take a toll?
1: I guess intellectually, I just could not believe that it would be possible to shut down the global economy. It's just not a concept that had ever occurred to me or I would think possible. And so by mid-March, it was becoming obvious that there were some uh, worry and restrictions happening. But right up until mid-March, I was still doing office meetings. Mind you, by that time, we were doing three people around a huge board table, all separate and sort of playing our role. And I think within a day, the hammer came down. But mostly I would say to you, and this is just personal, but uh, the hammer came down on me by my daughter. Uh, She's Uh, an ER doctor in Los Angeles. And uh, she phoned me before the governments actually had said, and she said, "Uh, that's it you're in solitary confinement until further notice. Mm. And so immediately all of the businesses I'm involved with and the nonprofits I'm involved with, we all scrambled to see, first of all, how do you survive a a lockdown before you can think about the future and what the future looks like. Like how can you survive the moment? What if you are a business that uh, is highly dependent on people coming through your front door? So you're a restaurant or you're a gallery. The government shuts the door, but all of your overhead is there, all of your expenses are there, and you have no revenue. And so the first uh, few weeks, I would say, was real crisis management for the, the businesses I've been involved with. And you have to immediately say, okay, well, we've got to start cutting costs wherever we can. And for the most part, one of the biggies is always wages, And so, unfortunately, that's how the unemployment numbers just ballooned immediately. It's not that uh, businesses wanted to do that, but that was one of their top cost items.
0: No, because I think uh, in the early going, before we really had the broadest possible sense of what government was prepared to do in this case, it seemed like a lot of business leaders felt they might be kind of on their own to to make this work out. I mean, there's just no was no anticipation of a wage subsidy there was no anticipation of uh, of almost a, a supplemental or a base income for people in emergency situations it was almost like a mad scramble for the first few weeks wasn't it
1: it was and um i i don't want to uh, look back on government and say what they should do or should have done but it it was slow in coming and so businesses sat down with their top employees and had some heartbreaking conversations about terminations, uh, some partial layoffs, some cut in salary, and had done all that nasty business. And then there came along the possibility of a wage subsidy. So then you had to, to go back and say, well, with some help, how do we reconfigure? So there were two sets of reconfigurations going on, which were very hard on. Not just businesses, but especially the employees.
0: With the um, with the many organizations with whom you're involved now, um, can you point to some general approaches that were taken around how they uh, how they govern themselves? Even
1: well, governance is really uh, interesting in a crisis. And we've all been through the, I would say, about two decades of learning about the role of the board is over here and the role of management's over there. And, you know, you don't you don't get too deep into the weeds. But when a crisis happens, then all of a sudden, all the rules go out the window and everybody wants to be on the inside and doing everything. And so it was a little bit tricky in the beginning for boards to realize, yes, you've got a very specific role now, but you also have to let management you know, figure out exactly what their plan is, come forward, talk it through with the board. And so I know of a couple of instances where that was not working very well. And management has to, from their point of view, understand the board anxiety. I mean, you're a board of directors, you feel responsible, you don't know what's happening, you don't even know if the business will survive. And so it's natural to be pushing against management and quarterly meetings aren't going to work. And so the ones that seemed to manage it best were management who realized there was anxiety on part of the boards and so had fairly regular updates, not the big foo foo of a board meeting, which takes so much time for management, but just keeping informed, then your good um, board members could certainly make suggestions that might be helpful without interfering too much. But one of the things, this is the second big crisis that uh, I've really been intimate with and the the first was the 2008 financial. And one of the problems that came out of it, a board responsibility is risk management. And so with the financial crisis in 2008, the regulators came down with the boots on everybody. Uh, where was the board of directors? Um, did you know what asset backed paper was? Did you know what this investment did? And so the risk management committee all of a sudden had these check boxes, you know, so yes, board heard this, yes, board did. And you got so focused on the minutiae that shouldn't have been the board's responsibility that the boards weren't doing any big risk management looks like cybersecurity like climate change, like hacking, like all of those big issues. And so I guess that's one of the things I keep cautioning boards about right now is, yeah, you're going to get pulled down into what what does our supply chain look like? Can we shorten it? Can we get it away, perhaps from China? Uh, You know, all of the issues that management's struggling with, what are our liabilities if we open up? So there are some legitimate questions for the board. But no one says that you're only going to have one crisis at a time. So don't forget to keep your eyes up there and look at the geopolitical factors that might be affecting your business and some of the big issues. So I would say it's a very tricky time for boards.
0: Yeah. Well, but it sounds, what you're saying though, is that that maybe um, our definition of what a board does has already changed. And is is maybe going to be a permanent change that they're, there might have to be a little bit more of an involvement in operations for a board to be nimble enough
1: yeah and it's uh, that's a very um fine balance yeah. and
0: as no, you know I, no, the operators don't want don't no, want a board, they
1: don't want to no. get,
0: get away you people know nothing about my business you know you're right. there but but in a way you know if, if you if the board has this accountability Uh, to, you know, to ownership, to shareholders, to whomever, stakeholders, I mean, doesn't it have to somehow also be leaning in a little bit more in the time? Yes, which is
1: why I suggest fairly regular updates, so that there is back and forth with suggestions and also information, because I don't want to hear from my neighbor something that my company has done, and I'm on the board and haven't heard about it, and that has happened in the past, but also... When uh, I was first getting my education on governance was some years ago, and that's when the federal government put me in charge of uh, two, actually, crown corporations sequentially that were in deep trouble because of governance. One was the okay. Port of Vancouver, where the chair and the CEO were at odds. The other, frankly, was CBC, where the chair and the CEO were at odds. And
0: I- I've worked for them a couple of times. That's never going to change.
1: <laughs> well, what would happen is the board didn't trust the, the CEO to be giving all the information. So they would go behind the CEO's back to other members of management to try and find out things. The CEO would say, you're going behind my back, and so I'm not going to give you the information. And, you know, Kirk, when that kind of culture sets in, I thought it'd be simple just to explain it and everybody would get it. It's very hard to undo. So I don't want in this crisis... For boards to get so involved in day-to-day management that they don't know how to step back, because it really is crucial that the board is an overseer and has a big eyes, big risk view of things. Um, and, and a board's
0: not thinking about that entity 24/7 the way that a you know an operating officer would be thinking of it or whatever. Right? I mean, you, you, board members are essentially there to get a little bit of a view from five thousand feet many times, but they're but they're applying their talents in various places. They're they're not not a hundred percent on one board and that's all you do,
1: right? Right. And a specific example is with staff layoffs. You know, that has to be management who know the roles, the know the people. They make the decisions. And you can't have individual board members saying, oh well I you know I don't like that one or whatever. I'll tell you, I used to, on the board of CBC, have board of directors saying that they didn't like a specific uh, sports announcer, shall we say? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I had to keep reminding them that it wasn't actually their role.
0: Hmm. I'm not sure he was an announcer, but, but that's okay. That might be <laughs> that might be insulting the announcers of the world. Uh, but anyway, um, we move on. Uh, you know, you, you seemed like you... You apprehended things pretty quickly, but what surprised you about this period?
1: Well, that it went on for so long. I think initially we all said, okay, two weeks locked down till we figure things out. And then it was a month. And I mean, now we're, what, two and a half months? I mean, it's really, uh, the the length of this has really surprised me. Um, The uh, creativity of the businesses I'm working with and trying to find alternate revenue sources uh, for instance, the the aquarium uh, went to the Whitecaps and they put together a project of making these masks and selling you know, them to bring yeah, in yeah. Some, some revenue. Uh, various businesses are really uh, aggressive about online shopping. See if we can get a bit of this until the people start coming through the door again. Uh, and certainly we've seen restaurants with their very aggressive delivery and takeout. So everybody's being... Um, as creative as they can to get through this difficult period. But these are not the solutions long-term.
0: No, but so, do, you, do you see some business practices changing, you know, almost yes. with, with some permanence to them? You
1: know? Yeah. The permanence will be the digital side of things where all retail will be building up that side of it. I mean, retail was in trouble before this happened. And so I think for sure, Digital. I would think that a lot of restaurants will keep up that side of takeout and delivery because they're not for a long time. Maybe not till a vaccine, going to be able to have the same number of people come in the door, and yet they've got the same overhead. And so how? And they've got little margins. So how do they make that work? Well, I think that they they will keep that as an extra. And the other thing I've seen. Uh, businesses do. There Lots of businesses are behind the scenes and it doesn't matter. But those that are front-facing and consumer-facing are working on their visibility. And so I know with the O'Dane Art Museum, the curator every Tuesday night does a Zoom um, presentation with one of the the artists that are featured in the gallery. And it's uh-huh. a half-hour conversation with an artist that you personally would never see before, but it's just to sort of keep the visibility there. I mean, everybody's just trying not to drown right now. And, you know, what we have to face is some of these businesses are just not going to survive.
0: Yeah. No, and well, I mean, our industry is, is among the ones, I think uh, with a pretty serious threat uh, about it right now. You have this great perspective, certainly a pan Canadian perspective, even a uh, North American perspective in, in the work that you've done. How well do you think B.C. will adapt?
1: Well, we didn't close down as heavily as other places, so that's a, that's a positive. Um, but we may be holding down longer on things like borders, which is a real problem because B.C.'s economy is so dependent on tourism and, and border crossings. So that, that part of it worries me. Uh, one of my main commitments these days is as the Canada chair for the Trilateral Commission. So right. it's international. And so I'm dealing with international issues as well as uh, Canadian issues. Now, what do you do if you're an organization whose a whole raison d'etre is to be public policy for international leaders coming together in big groups, crossing borders to discuss all of these issues. Well, like you can't do it. And so immediately our big plenary in Washington DC got canceled at huge cost because these big conventions take a lot of money. Um, I'm responsible for the next Canadian meeting which is in November and it's international so it's everybody coming. And so I've been working on that for a year. And so I've got the hotel locked down, the meeting space locked down, uh, cultural events locked down. Well, personally, I don't think that by November we're going to have any international conferences happening. And yet, how do you make that decision? And yet it's an expensive decision to make.
0: Yeah, I mean, people are talking about covid years you know like we like we are the equivalent of dog years or person years or whatever you know it, it, the situation's so fluid that we actually don't even really know if suddenly something could magically arrive to you know to to wipe the virus out i mean we, we you know that's the most bizarrely optimistic portion of it most of us are in the realistic camp of saying it's it's going to be an endurance test here it's a marathon uh but you you know you're right how do you uh, how do you not plan for a year or two years out how do you how do you basically violate the rhythm that goes with all of that yes Uh, and you become
1: irrelevant altogether because people are now doing other things and zoom is featuring all kinds of other interviews. Um, I uh, I also think about the psychological part of all of this. I mean, we've been talking about the financial, but you know, the psychological is huge. And yes. so I don't know how long it'll be before people want to go to international meetings just casually. I don't know, even if the borders open up and the planes come in, whether people will Want, they'll hesitate, I think, to do that. And then the idea of being in a large, crowded gathering—I think that's just going to be a long, long time if we ever go back to those models.
0: Yeah, you know, but just think of the destruction of so many of our institutions if that is the case, right? Beyond—it's I, I I mean, it's beyond a it's beyond scope that any of us have imagined. It's—you uh, know—it's—it's—it's it's, it's really quite—it's apocalyptic to some degree. Uh, you know, it's pretty tough that way. Uh, try not to be too doomy and gloomy here. Um, are there are there good business opportunities? Do you think right there, right now? Well, this, I, that makes some I sense. Guess if,
1: I guess if we'd all been clever, we would have been heavily into Amazon. And as the um, yeah, as the yeah. fellow who <laughs> works in in. My apartment says, uh, actually, what we all should have done was buy a cardboard box manufacturer (laughs) because the boxes are piled up every day as everybody's doing online shopping. Um, uh, You know, the high tech, a lot of the high tech has survived quite well, but they're changing. A good friend of mine is the founder of Open Text, big, Mm -hmm. big Canadian success story. And he is international and he is closing 50% of his offices around the world. And it's not that he's cutting staff with that. He just sees that this other model of more people working from home has been quite successful. And so he is forever changing his model. I, the um, the ones that worry me the most, I think, in the short term are, are any of the service and tourism groups yeah. and the nonprofits. Nonprofits, which, uh, I mean, we're all out begging right now. And you go to a foundation and a foundation says... You know what we just saw with the stock market drop. Um, our assets have completely changed, and we're making no more donations for the rest of the year until we see what's going to happen.
0: Yeah, no, and, I'm, I'm on. I'm on one of those boards, and that's the sense I'm getting too. Um, it's it, nobody really wants. No, nobody's even renewing subscriptions and memberships and things yeah. like that, that because they're you know they look at perhaps the. The service changes, so you know what am I subscribing to um, when I when I buy tickets or buy whatever. So, yeah, totally, totally uh, bad that way. Um, do you have a do you have a any kind of a guess on on what mile in the marathon we're in here?
1: Well, as you know, my kids live in the states, and so I am so anxious to be able to visit my kids. I mean, that's just a personal thing. Sure. And so I've watched these border closings really closely. And I don't know if I'm even going to be able to do it in July, you know, the way the BC government is talking about it. No. Um, and, and, you know, so it's certainly going to be the summer. But I'm trying to do my best. And so I went to a restaurant this week.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I've, yeah. I've been out there too. That's yeah. good.
1: And uh. so, yes, I really, I mean, I want these guys to survive and I just know what issues they're dealing with behind the scenes. Yeah. And so I'm not much of a shopper, but I intend to, you know, think about ways of supporting, you know, the little shops around because the chains will probably be, most of the chains will be okay. But yeah. it's the, um, it's the smaller ones that make our community special. It's yeah. like the, the smaller restaurants are the ones that are in danger, not a big yeah,
0: They're the identity of a neighborhood, there's no doubt. And
1: the cultural groups, like how do we keep the cultural groups surviving when they barely survive in good times?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And that's a big issue if we want the city to go back to being the Vancouver we love.
0: Yeah, exactly. A couple last things. uh, I'm asking everybody on this one. Um, What are you doing to take care of yourself? Like, are you you suddenly like, uh, you know, uh, running... 20 kilometers in the morning or Bob Bob Brennan claims that he's walking 20 to 30 K a day
1: he is he is four hours a day so I think that's a really important question and I think we're all contacting our friends more often than we usually do just to make sure are you okay and what are you doing and you know can I be support so I'm in the worst possible situation I'm in solitary confinement most people have a family and so their, their bubble at least has somebody that they talk to. And I've been really rigid about it up until the past week or so. And so I've seen nobody. And therefore, you know, you have to think about how you're coping. Well, having so much work has been good because that's a distraction. I'm really sick of the, the Zoom meetings of 25 people trying to talk over one another. Um, but the work has been good. But I'm very conscious about it. So I do cardio every morning and i make sure i do a walk later in the day and i do some yoga at night and so those physical things are part of it and of course i make sure that i really i cook every meal properly and i'm doing it from a healthy point of view because it'd be very easy to slip into junk and so i I'm, I'm very consciously working on that part of it but mentally having all the work is is the most important i've got a, a couple of friends who um, are retired and so they are going crazy
0: okay and, and last question carol and and uh, also asking others about this so in in this whole pandemic what do you feel you've learned about yourself
1: i really need work i really enjoy my work and um intellectually i need that kind of challenge and stipulate stimulation and i know that uh, this has been a real test of that. But also I would say my um, my social contacts, you know, my good friends, my family for sure, and my business friends. Uh, I think I'd taken all of that a bit for granted and now really appreciate how important that social network is.
0: Yeah, nice. Well, stay safe, stay well. Thanks a lot for your time today. Thank you. I'll let you get on to your next Zoom call with your friends and family. Carol Taylor, and you've been watching the BIV Business Leadership Series. I'm Kurt LePoint, publisher and editor-in-chief at BIV. Thanks for watching. We'll see you again.
1: Thank you, everyone, for attending today's very interesting session. I'm Will Westring, managing partner of Faskin's BC region, which includes our downtown Vancouver and Surrey locations. Faskin is a Canadian-based international law firm with offices across Canada in London, England, Johannesburg, South Africa, and Beijing, China. We are BC's largest law firm and have been
0: serving this province's business community for over 130 years. At Fasken, we provide a full range of legal services, including assisting clients in relaunching their operations and implementing COVID-19 business recovery
1: efforts. Please call us or visit our website for information on all the services we provide, including our COVID-19 Knowledge Center. We really are in this
0: together. Thank you.